Welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. (laughs) Uh, Hi, my name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I do not work in clinical research, but I'm happy to be here listening and getting explained to and asking questions. Mm-hmm. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so hopefully you feel more informed and that you can trust the outcomes of research a little bit more. There's a lot we can discuss, and again, today we are turning things on their head. I'm going to sit back, relax, and get my question brain switched on, because we're in Elise's Goblin Corner Yes, again. welcome to my Goblin Corner, <laughs> <clears throat> where we have scratchy throats all the time, thanks to allergies, sorry. I'll do my best. Yeah, I'm doing my best. Stay hydrated. You're good. Yes. So welcome to my Goblin Corner. Uh, Today, our main topic is uh, ketamine therapy for depression. Uh, Mm. And specifically, just more broadly, depression and medical treatments for it, um, medicine, drug-assisted treatments for it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Just real quick, a content warning for today's episode. We will be discussing depression and um, suicide. So if that is, yeah, proceed with caution and uh, we'll jump in. So <clears throat> we'll be talking especially about MDD or major depressive disorder. So I want to kind of kick us off by asking what you know about various kinds of depression. What are they and what differentiates them? I and this is uh, perhaps shameful as someone with depression. I don't know. I know how my depression is, but I I don't know. Is it like a sliding scale? Are there boxes <laughs> I should be in? And like my diagnosis and my therapists have never been like, oh, you have stand on your head depression. They're just like, <laughs> oh, you have depression. Here, have some CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, have some more counseling. These are the medicines you can have if you want them. Yep. How are you doing? Kind of thing. So I don't know very much. Yeah. I mean, that's really typical. And there's a reason for that. I mean, a lot of times people don't actually. Well, okay. let me back up. One, some of the categories, quote unquote, of uh, depression are much more wishy-washy than and are used more to kind of um, help us talk about it than they are firm categories that help diagnose and treat they're not like clinical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, yeah, clinical is such a complicated, messy word in this case, but yes, <laughs> um, for the effects of yeah. like what, what we're talking about. And so with major depressive disorder, there's also kind of like situational depression, right? Which is where a lot of people experience uh, situational depression, like one or a few bad things happen in your life um, that make you feel depressed or you're in an ongoing difficult situation that is bringing your mood down and creating a, a deficit of kind of the, the feel good chemicals that help us feel good. And our mood and emotions are dulled um, and make us and, and people can feel that hopelessness and that kind of detached sense from their life um, through situational depression. So this is um probably the most common form that people experience in terms of it tends to be directly associated with something going on in your life, a divorce, Mm -hmm. a really bad working situation, a traumatic event, um, grief, grief. Absolutely. Um, and situational depression is treated differently, um, than other 
forms of depression. So when we start talking about major depressive disorder, we're talking about people who experience depression that isn't necessarily tied to, strictly tied to events, although certain of adverse events can absolutely impact and create worse mm-hmm. symptoms and signs of depression for people. But major depressive disorder is, is more about kind of an ongoing, persistent um, pulling down of the mood, feeling of hopelessness or detachment from the things that give you joy and um, these kinds of things that doesn't seem to be directly tied to uh, some outside stimulus or adverse event. Okay. And then there's there's some other things like, you know, we, we've talked a lot uh, in the, the kind of zeitgeist <laughs> about like seasonal affective disorder and things like that, which can be, oh, yeah. <clears throat> which can impact and be a part of it. So that's, you know, seasonal affective disorder. I, I think it's, I don't know what it is, uh, but the fact that it spells sad when you write out its acronym mm. just really, really speaks to me. Uh, but basically, you know, there's other things that impact our mood, like uh, sunlight and vitamin D intake and things like this. And so... But you live in a super sunny place, so uh, yeah. that seems nonsense. <laughs> well, I, I'm not... <laughs> I live in the greyest country yeah. in the history of the world. Like, oh, look, great clouds. <laughs> yeah, I do live in a super sunny place, and uh, it has to do in part with not only how much that, like sunlight comes, you know, how much grey clouds there is, but also the seasonal aspect of it is how early the sun sets oh. or, and how late it rises. So in places where it may be very sunny, but you only get a few hours of sunlight a day, there's probably higher rates of um, seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, I can see that. I can see mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and that's why in the... Good, as we're sliding into winter here yes. and super short days <laughs> yep. in the UK. As, I can't wait. It's a, it's a real thing, um, and it really... It's, oh, yeah. it's one of those things where, like, I don't notice how my own... Like, I wouldn't say I fully have seasonal affective disorder, but I do notice in the spring when the days start getting longer, my mood bounces back up, right, in a way... You're buoyant, mm-hmm, yes. That, like... And all the all the things start growing, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's a, the nature is nature yeah. in. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. there's a lot that makes uh, the the longer sunlight times of the year feel mm-hmm. significantly better to us. But part of it is also just our chemistry reacting to having more exposure to sunlight. Yeah, man. Yeah, I can I can see that. Okay, so with that background, today we're talking about MDD, major depressive disorder, and how we treat it with medication. Uh, And that's an important backdrop for today's topic because um, there's a lot of controversy uh, around how ketamine therapy is prescribed essentially for people. And so I don't want to give the impression when we're talking about this, that this is a widely available treatment for um, Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. uh, And and we'll get more, we'll circle back around to that concept at the end. Sure. Okay. So most of the drugs that we call antidepressants that are on the market today work in the same way. Uh, They inhibit a process that removes the feel-good chemicals from our brain. So it's normal to have those molecules um, be transient, right? They come and they go. That's Mm -hmm. typical and normal and expected of these types of molecules, things like serotonin, for example. Um, That's how your brain chemistry is meant to work, right? They come in and they go away. Exactly. We don't want serotonin to build up endlessly in your brain. That would actually be bad. 
you're not just f- like fully <laughs> exactly. jolly all the time. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, so along with other kind of feel-good molecules um, like serotonin and others, uh, they get taken away from our brains as well, filtered out through our kidneys and livers, and then we get new doses of them <clears throat> later. And yeah. when we inhibit the process of them getting taken away from our brains, when we stop that process, at least temporarily, um, we increase the chance that those neurotransmitters ha- can can do good, can give us a greater impact, right? So especially for people mm-hmm. with depression, where it's believed that you uh, that you would have less serotonin and other feel-good molecules than they need to have a stable, positive mood. Um, mm-hmm. There's when we inhibit those going away, those things going away, we give them a, a chance of having greater impact when there's fewer of them in our system. Okay. Okay, so that sounds great. Um, but there are problems. Can you guess any of them? Well, um, I feel like, and I'm, I'm not an expert, but I feel like just making something hang around for longer isn't necessarily, like, in line with the, the brain chemistry problem, right? Like, it doesn't... If I'm not making very much serotonin, even if the one-tenth of the serotonin that I've got hangs around for longer, that doesn't that doesn't do anything about the peak. Yeah. Right? You want the peak to be higher rather than longer. Yeah. That's, I mean, great. And, and there is a lot of research into exactly that problem um, and other types of treatments for people who need hired like for example ADHD treatments also introduce more like flood your system with certain types of chemicals right um but that's Mm. actually a flooding of the system with those chemicals as opposed to the inhibitors which just prevents the removal of naturally Mm. occurring ones um Mm -hmm. and so there's there's kind of competing ways to treat different things um that have to do with the same kind of process of needing more of a certain thing and you're right the the um the inhibitors uh, don't don't do that. They don't flood our system with serotonin. Um, so this this problem of like we're not actually flooding the system with serotonin is one of the many things that kind of contribute to one of the largest problems of these inhibitors. Um, so how many of us know someone who is or are ourselves on mm. an SSRI, which is one of the most common first line treatments? depression selective serotonin reuptake exactly yes that inhibitor word love me Mm -hmm. some acronyms (laughs) and those people abbreviations abbreviations yeah acronym what's uh andy andy Andy? what's between an acronym and an abbreviation (laughs) no no we don't know anything we have to ask andy Abbreviation is just when you shorten it. Acronym is when you take the first yes. letter of the word. That's okay, correct. thanks, Andy, for thanks, calling Andy. in. Catch yeah, you later. Bye. <laughs> so, how many of us know someone who is on or are ourselves mm. on an SSRI? Um, and as we've just said, an SSRI is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Yes, an excellent acronym. <laughs> Not an abbreviation. Not an abbreviation. Whose depression doesn't really go away. Uh, Mm, In 2017, something like 12.5% of Americans were being treated for depression, um, primarily through things like SSRIs or similar drugs. Mm -hmm. And Mm. it's not like, you know, 
when if 12.5% in 2017 are being treated and like SSRIs were like a cure all for depression, then like, shouldn't we see a decrease or like, you know, no more, like fewer people who have depression aren't taking it. Yeah. 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 And if 12.5% of the American population is a big number as well, because there's a lot of you. There's a lot. Yeah. You, you a big place. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a crisis for sure. Um, Mm. and in fact, 20% of patients don't experience improvement using our standard suite of treatments for depression. And that includes non-medical or medication-based treatments. Um, and this is called like, uh, treatment resistant depression. Um, and so, but I mean, 20% is a huge number to say like, oh, we've tried SSRIs and similar, like the whole suite of inhibitor style drugs. Um, and just no no improvement like that's huge right yeah would that number include people who'd had a selection of like therapeutic invention interventions as in not just here eat this drug but also talk to this person and here have some strategies yes oh and still 20 one fifth of people yeah who have depression don't experience an improvement. Don't, get, don't feel any better. Mm-hmm. With, with the that's, treatment we currently I mean, have. That, as somebody with depression, that's awful. It is. Because my depression is really transient. It's it's always there, but it's... it's I like to call it like a wave. Mm-hmm. Like, it comes and it goes. And some days, sometimes, you can feel yourself going into it and you can feel yourself coming out of it. Like the seasons, mm-hmm. right? But it's not seasonal. And when it's bad, it's really, really bad. It's awful. But... With the the therapy that I have, or the strategies that I have, etc., I come out the other side, and it's a varying amount of time how long that out the other side takes—days, weeks, months. But to 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 not have that, to just be in the ditch, that is, God, that's horrendous. I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine living like that, mm-hmm. surviving. Yeah, it's uh, mm. it's really serious, right? And it. Hugely. It's debilitating for people. Yep. So even when SSRIs and similar treatments mm. do work, it can take a long time for them to have an effect. And once yep. they do have an impa- effect, that impact can diminish over time. So people who um, have positive reactions to SSRIs sometimes experience over time diminished positive impact from that. So, because your brain probably adapts to, oh, this is going to be around for a bit longer. That's what I'm used to, right? That's your tolerance for Mm -hmm. it changes. I know so many people who have been or are on SSRIs and also have difficulty in coming off them. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so there, that's part of it too. Um, A lot of people, once they come off of an SSRI or similar, um, experience depression again. Uh, It's not necessarily. It's not thought to be like a rebound in the sense of like coming off the drug creates the depression. Uh, it's more of just like, okay, we were we were suppressing some thing and they may be in like basically like a remission period. We do actually use the term remission um, in talking about depression. Um, but the SSRI isn't curing depression, right? It's suppressing and then over time things it's things happen and the depression symptoms come back for people for you're many not solving people. the problem you're just managing the symptom right. like if you've got a hole in your tire 
that's a slow puncture, right? You can just keep pumping air into it and you can still drive a bit, yeah. but the hole is still there linking air. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's again, it's worth noting, like we are talking about major depressive disorder here, not situational mm-hmm. depression. The, these things react differently to these kinds of drugs. So I do want to just kind of put a pin in that and make sure we're underlying this whole discussion with like, this is not always or immediately the effect of SSRIs, right? A lot of people have positive experiences on them. And if you are definitely having a positive experience with an SSRI, this is not meant to undermine that. Like it's, it's normal and good that you're having a positive experience with it. Um, and it can help people get to the point where they no longer experience depression symptoms, but with major depressive disorder, it's less common and it's more likely that people Mm. will have relapses or returns to those depressive depressive periods. Cool. Our current suite of antidepressants are also less effective or outright bad for people with certain comorbidities, which is you have more than one type of disorder or um, illness. illness at the same time. Health concern. Exactly. Yeah. So especially bipolar disorder and alcohol dependency, um, they're People with bipolar disorder um, who are being treated uh, with bi- with benzodiazepines, benzos, benzos super great, um, yep. just simply cannot have SSRIs. Um, and Is that because of drug drug interactions, or it's because benzos are a depressant meant to modulate or or um, stabilize mood so that you don't have manic periods and SSRIs will actually induce manic periods for people with bipolar disorder or can. Um, it, it is, uh, it can be described as by people with bipolar disorder, taking an SSRI, like taking a hit of a pretty potent, like illegal upper kind of drug for them. Um, which is, not the effect we want from SSRIs, um, especially in people with BPD who, when they have manic periods um, or can be triggered into a manic period, experience very bad side effects of that. Like that's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a good thing to be manic clinically. Cool. I just did a quick Google as well. Um, Some SSRIs have no interactions, like with with something like Valium. Mm. Right, which is um, something that they might also take, but some increase the potency when taken together. Uh, so an increased risk of sedation, confusion, and loss of coordination. Um, so some, like sertraline, which is a super common SSRI, um, has been shown to increase levels of benzodiazepines when used in combination. So it just gives them a bigger hit. Yeah, uh, that makes sense, yeah. right? And and I love, I don't love it. I hate it but it's the nature of science and the human body like um although the mechanism is unknown that's always a great start to a sentence (laughs) we don't know why this happens but we know it does so we're not we're not messing with that okay yes yeah that's 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 difficult yeah so we need we need antidepressants that help people with bipolar disorder people with alcohol dependency like they also need access to treatment um but we don't currently have medical or medication assisted treatments that are effective for them or safe for them no. even no um or that work or that work right that that, that that work in the in the way that you would want right mm-hmm. that that allow you to to get on with your life right there's also a wide side effect variety of side effects 
um, oh, yeah. for of SSRIs and, and similar drugs, that can be quite difficult for patients. So sometimes you have to trade some of the few things that make you feel like your life is good during a depressive um, period for the overall benefit of the SSRI, which of course has a, a mitigating effect of the overall positive effect because you're giving up some things that are good in your life or you're experiencing an increase of side effects um, that make you unhappy, which is the opposite point of uh, yeah. what an SSRI is supposed to do. It's supposed to help you feel happier or more stable. Mm. So in sum, all of our drug-assisted treatments for depression rely on this type of in inhibiting the process, the mm -hmm. neurotransmitters, okay? And that really doesn't seem to be cutting it for a lot of folks. Um, so isn't it time we tried to find alternative ways to treat major depressive disorder? Yeah, and I, and I would have thought if this is something that 12.5% of Americans... This is a medicine that 12.5% of Americans are taking. Not to be like, mm-hmm, capitalism. That's a ton of money. Yeah. So I, I would be surprised that pharma companies aren't, like, really on this topic. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a second. So let me get us... Let us let's ease into that. <laughs> because okay, just okay, like okay. with Narcan, there's a lot of cultural reasons why that is not the case. Um, uh -huh. So, okay... Why is it, why is your corner always filled with like cultural mm, nuance? It's almost like, like come I, over here, <laughs> come see. Try and look at this problem from all angles. Uh, so ketamine, this leads us to ketamine treatment. Um, so specifically, ketamine is being studied for treatment of people with treatment-resistant depression. So they resist... The 20%. Yeah, the 20%. People who have major depressive disorder and show no signs of improvement through our standard suite of treatments. Yep. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic drug, which means that it induces a sense of separation between one's mind and one's body to the point that pain, physical and psychological, is experienced as if remotely, as if someone else is experiencing it, and therefore does not trigger protective reflexes or processes. So normally when we experience pain, we try to jerk away from the thing causing us pain, or we shy away from it, or we go into fight or flight, or other things to react to it. But because of the anesthetic nature of ketamine or other anesthetic drugs, um, those processes get shut down. Okay. So what else do you know about ketamine? Um, I think the first thing that came to mind was, I know it's used as a horse tranquilizer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because um, it, it is that kind yeah. of... Potent. Tranquilizing effect, yes. right? Yeah. And I also know that in the UK, at some point, quote unquote recently, the government tried to ban it mm -hmm. because of recreational yes. or um, other uses. And basically the... the the I think it was the BMA the Medical Association and a bunch of vets went. You fucking can't do that. <laughs> you, you you absolute doormats. You you cannot do that. We need it for 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 medical reasons. You know. Yeah. Uh, Let us tranquilize like, our horses. You just want a bunch of animals to be in pain. Yeah yeah cool cool cool. Go for your life. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah I believe as well. Uh, I sound like such a cool person that some kids might also take it recreationally <laughs> that's true uh, for their personal enjoyment mm -hmm. um but i imagine if it's also like sedative mm -hmm. is it ever used by bad people to do bad things to unconscious 
yes people's bodies oh mm-hmm. yes okay, cool. so it does have a history um and a known association with being used to facilitate or as part of um sexual assault unfortunately um okay that is one of its uh more alarming obviously uses um it is also to some degree used um recreationally uh there are other dissociative anesthetics that are used more commonly like pcp um, is a dissociative anesthetic. You're so hip and cool. You oh, know all these things. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with like the research that I do or my field of study. Or <laughs> oh, you're, yeah, or your your yeah, exactly your job or your life. No, 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 no. You're just hip and cool. Just hip and cool. You are yeah. Hip and cool, oh, thanks. Just take the compliment. Okay, I will. Um, and so, uh, oh, how do people do that? You just take the compliment. <laughs> okay, fine. Move on. <laughs> Gross. Gross. Um, how is this not brought out like a whole like? traumatic response in you when oh, someone's well, giving you a compliment. you're doing it for me. <laughs> you're welcome. You're amazing. Thanks. Um, it's also... <laughs> I, I need to, like, screen cap this and put it on the website, the face, just so people can see, like, this is how Debbie reacts to, to compliments, even when they're not aimed at her. <laughs> I'm giving them to my very good friend. And then I'm having a reaction to how... How the correct way to receive a, a compliment given with love is, which is, yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> Rather than my reaction, which is, oh, no, I hate this. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm feeling uncomfortable because of your great reaction. <laughs> oh, get time to go back to therapy, I guess, Deb. I was gonna, jokingly, I was going to say, how's that CBT going? <laughs> yeah, not great. That's out. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Ketamine is also used as a, as a pain therapy. Um... Because it does have that anesthetic effect. Uh, It's used sometimes, Mm. for example, um, to create a very quick, rapid sedation and pain reduction for people who are being transported to the hospital, for example. Um, And this is actually part of its origin story as a treatment for depression, is that people who um, were very distraught and uh, even suicidal were being transported after an attempt, um, a suicide attempt to the hospital. And time and time again, they would be given ketamine to subdue them in, in the transport so that they could be safely transported. Yeah. And weeks later, they would be talking about how much better they feel and how after that dose of ketamine, they don't have some of those suicidal thoughts anymore, that their depression seems significantly better. And so people started saying, like, listen, once or twice, like, that's anecdotal, but we're starting to hear this story all the time. Maybe we should investigate it and see if it is more than anecdotal. And those kinds of stories are... uh, I don't know if they're common, but that's, that's, like, one of the ways that you discover, like, side effects of drugs on patient-reported outcomes, Mm -hmm. right? Or... Like, I have this drug and I take it for this thing, but it also helps with that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I take this medicine for my asthma, but it turns out it also helps my eczema yes. or something, you know? Which is also how the... Because pain as pain therapy, ketamine has been used much longer, and, and that's another way that... Another thing that's contributed to the push for more research is that same exact thing that you just described, too, of, like, people taking it for pain, reporting my depression is much better, and that trend is coming out. Yeah. Okay, so as a treatment for MDD, major depressive disorder, ketamine was first officially studied in the early 2000s. 
There are known historical examples well-documented of earlier uses of ketamine and other psychedelics for depression, treatment of depression, and even substance use disorder. But here's the part where we get back to the culture. Uh, In the 1990s, the U.S. had this lovely thing um, starting called the War on Drugs. So Mm -hmm. great. So Mm -hmm. good for us. That's sarcasm. Did you win that war? There's no such thing as winning it because it was never a war to begin with. It was an excuse. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it an was excuse stupid idea. to criminalize and uh, incarcerate a lot of people who really should not have been incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And it set back research into things like ketamine for decades. Uh, not for F-O-U-R, but F-O-R, for decades. Um it really, <laughs> it really did. It was, it was this craze of like, we can't, anything that's used recreationally as a, it's as bad. like a feel like, let's, as like a, let's take a hit of ketamine to just like dissociate for a while, um, was now not only illegal, but also so immoral according to the rules of the war on drugs. Uh, and therefore we cannot conscient, we can't, um, What's the word? Like, it's it's wrong for us to even consider using it as yeah. treatment for people who are ill. Um, and so... Because it's it's completely in the bad and wrong pile. Yeah. And this is not... The case is not just this for ketamine, right? Mm-hmm. It will be the same for... Um, if we think about now... Cannabidiols. Mm-hmm. And things that they're being used to treat, like... Yep. Epilepsy. Yes. And we've known... Um, We've known oh, yeah. for a long time. And how we are, yeah, two or three decades back from where we should be because of this shame mm-hmm. and criminalization for no scientific reason apart from someone went, yeah, that's that's how it should be. I'm like, mm, no. Yeah. I, because I think I think people mistake um, the the difficulty that can be caused by drug seeking behaviour. Mm-hmm. Or drug enabling behavior versus drug taking behavior. Absolutely. Right? Like if I am a, a rich white person, oh hey, I am, bingo, and I choose to go out and take a couple of lines of cocaine at the weekend, I can afford that. I can function in my job doing that, and it's not really affecting anybody else. But if I'm having to steal something in order to fund wanting to take that, that then becomes a problem in society. Mm-hmm. And so instead of treating the root cause we are treating the symptoms yes right like with the depression absolutely yep well so this is ultimately what set us back in ketamine therapy um research is exactly this mentality of like well if we just stop letting ketamine be in the public consciousness somehow that will save us from you know all the things that you just identified as like the larger problems but by the mid 2010s researchers so 2016 or 2017 is when a lot of these studies started to really come out researchers were advocating for a whole new way of thinking about depression because increasingly we were seeing ssris and the other kind of first line and second line um treatments that we have that are drug assisted 
we're, weren't really working the way we want them to work. And so mm, we have to mm-hmm. think about depression differently. So this brought about a whole paradigm shift about depression. And uh, how, how else can we treat it then, right? If it's not through this inhibition process or if that's not the only way to, to um, treat it, then what else can we do? So mm. a common misconception about ketamine treatment for MDD is that disassociation and the anesthetic effect is actually the way that it works to help patients with depression, but that's not true. Uh There's a lot of neuroscience I don't fully understand. And in my research, I've encountered a fair amount of ambivalists, even in the publications about what exactly is going on when people take, we don't know the mechanism. We don't know the mechanism. (laughs) That, those words do so much heavy yeah. lifting in research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't, it, this is the difference between like correlation and causation, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you see a correlation and you can't nail down the causation, but the correlation is strong enough that you, like with the AstraZeneca vaccines, mm-hmm. right? Like initially we didn't know why it was happening, but we knew it was happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. No, I also think like with brain chemistry, it's, it's, there's, we don't know every single pathway of every single bit of it. So of course we're not going to know how to control or influence. And that's going to be a big part of what I'm about to get into is ketamine is this, it works as an MMDA receptor antagonist, which impacts how glutamate is produced and integrated in our brains. It's protein. Cool. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, I feel like I'm back at university. To be completely honest with you, like I have a pretty high tolerance for like absorbing information about neuroscience. And the more I tried to read about this, the less I understood. So I have resorted to simpler ways to explain it, which I do understand, even though I don't understand like all the specifics. Right. So it's, the old paradigm, imagine the old paradigm of depression being a fairly linear process, right? If you will think about like what the flow chart would look like, we'd have like boxes for two or three parts of the brain that are involved. Yeah. And they would have single direction arrows pointing from one box to another to another kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of simple understanding. That's this idea of like if we increase the amount and duration of feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin, chemicals like that in the brain or and f- increase their duration, how long they're acting in our brain, we can increase our mood. Make person feel, yeah, make person feel better, yeah. Now imagine the new paradigm, also kind of thinking of that, like, mental flow chart. We now have more parts of the brain involved. They're overlapping each other. They're pointing both directions of each other, like, up and down, left and right, all across, right? Maybe there's a feedback loop yeah, in yeah, the middle exactly. of it. So yeah. the new, this new paradigm of how depression, it involves so much more of the brain than what the, in the 1950s, when we came up with the idea of what eventually mm. became, you know, the, the, well, what is the class of drugs that SSRIs belong to, um, we were imagining it as a significantly simpler process than it actually is. So when we think about depression this way, the more complex way, that means there are many processes in the brain of proteins attaching to things and neurotransmitters hitting things and blah, blah, blah. All of that is all happening and all of it impacts our mood and emotion and the stability of our mood over time, which means all of it could potentially impact major depressive disorder. Meaning there's got to be other things besides that original way of thinking that could impact or that we could intervene with drugs to treat depression. I'm not just going to make this one molecule stick around for longer. It turns out there are more things to this process than just this one exactly. molecule hanging around. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, research supports ketamine at a sub-anesthetic dose, but not a sub-dissociative dose of, uh, for people with depression. Yes. So that means it's a dose that doesn't make me go sleepy night mm-hmm. bye-bye, but does give me the, the I'm a step back from my body feeling. Correct. Uh, sub-dissociative, not... S- okay. Yes. So in other words, the amount of ketamine you would receive if you were doing this type of treatment is enough to induce yep. the state of dissociation, that feeling of separation between one's body yep. and one's mind, yep. but not high enough to have the anesthetic effect that numbs pain and and the protective reflexes and, yeah, gives you that sleepy nighttime tranquilized, tranquilized yeah. feel. Sleepy go bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a continued push in research to see if we can achieve therapeutic results at a sub-dissociative dose as well, because disassociation is not the actual mechanism of action for treating depression. So this is a common misconception, is that it is by dissociating, right? We actually separate ourselves from our from the things that trigger our depression in some way right. that is actually therapeutic, and that's not what the science supports. Uh, how do we know that? Is it because we induce dissociation in other mechanisms, like other than ketamine, Mm. and it doesn't have any impact on depression? Or do we not know? So that's a great question. I don't know the full answer. The partial answer Mm -hmm. that I know uh, is that we know that ketamine is doing this um, NMDA receptor antagonism thing that is impacting the glutamates and all that, the proteins. And that is that is part of the studied cycle and interplay. The, the really complex yes. flow chart of brain yes. chemistry. And we know that that yep. is impacting, like that is itself what is causing changes in people's state. And the dissociation seems to be a side effect of that, not the primary mechanism, right? It is actually the the neuroscience of the sep- of that whole process <laughs> that is causing both dissociation and a therapeutic effect, um, but they could theoretically be separated. And there has been very limited results of cases where a sub-dissociative dose has been used to great effect. Okay, Not... Okay. Most cases, I will say that has been kind of an outlier case, um, that a few times it's been shown with certain patients, et cetera, that it could be useful. So it may be that the dissociation is kind of like the unattended side effect, mm-hmm. right? Yes. In that getting the, the therapeutic dose that the patient needs is this amount. Mm-hmm. And in some patients that will induce dissociation and in some patients it won't. Correct. Like the the unexpected side effect of Viagra. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. And uh, I, I. So what we're saying is, ketamine is going to give my brain an erection. That's that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, go for it if that's what you want. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> okay, so um, ketamine is administered either intravenously or as a nasal spray, and typically patients receive a few doses a week. For a course of several months. So this is a very intensive therapy. Yeah. The exact Mm -hmm. timing and length of treatment is case by case. So someone Mm -hmm. seeking this type of treatment would work with a doctor very closely to decide what their own pacing would be for this. And uh, patients must receive the dose in a doctor's office or hospital. 
and they must be mm-hmm. monitored during the entire duration of the drug's immediate impact, which is about two hours. So they'll be like in in a medical facility with folks standing around them and they'll be on the bleep bleep machines. Yes. Okay, yep. cool. Um, if you see photos, there are photos published of people receiving ketamine therapy. You can look them up. It's basically like you'll be in a comfortable bed laying down with something covering your eyes and there will be doctors and perhaps loved ones sitting around your bed and just kind of waiting the two hours. Okay. Um, and there can also be talk therapy of like administered during that initial hit um, while dissociated. While dissociated. Um, Are the patients that are receiving this treatment part of large or small research studies? Because I'm assuming that this treatment is for MDD, major depressive disorder, is experimental, Mm -hmm. right? So the the main way that patients will be uh, acquiring this treatment is as part of research. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also um, a lot of it is I've been, you know, off-label yeah, love it, mm-hmm. love it. Yeah, yeah cool, we, cool, we have cool, talked. Cool. So the doctor thinks this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a red hot go. Yeah. And then if it is a good thing, they'll report their results. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's research and off-label prescribing mm-hmm. coming together. Yes. Um, okay, so what we have learned so far is that results are very positive, And there are a few really important outcomes to cover. First, ketamine treatment works rapidly. We're talking hours or days of within hours or days of the first dose many patients report relief from depression symptoms who have again mm-hmm. gotten no relief from any other treatment ever in their lives most likely <laughs> um, or at least for some so within hours or days of the first dose or second dose um, high rates of positive results there tends to be a decreasing effect over time but the majority of patients who have gone through an entire course of ketamine treatment have achieved remission, where, again, they have never had success at having their depression treated in the past, meaning that although they may experience depression again later in their life, they currently are no longer experiencing depression. So, I mean, that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. If it's something that's been with you forever. So that sounds like it, it potentially then moves more towards the situational model rather than it's just there all the time ruining everything. Like, it goes away for a bit. Cool. Yes. Yeah, it goes away for a bit. Um, How good would that and be? And potentially forever. There are people who report, like, no longer having depression after these treatments. Amazing. That's amazing. Second, there's increasing evidence that ketamine treatment is most effective if we pace it a little slower and patients receive cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, between doses. Cool. Yeah. Love that. CBT is a popular form of therapy in which patients learn about and practice altering thought patterns and behaviors as a way to reduce negative feelings associated with depression and anxiety. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty cool to see... uh, that we're increasingly studying multimodal approaches to treating. I love that mm-hmm. because it, it also gives a person like super good tools of living with your own brain, right. right? Sometimes if your brain chemistry is is messed up, no matter how good your toolkit is, you're you're having trouble, exactly. right? But if you've got the right tools in your toolbox, that really helps. Yes. So one one significant symptom of depression is this feeling of perspective is gone when we're in a depressive period it feels like nothing will ever be good again nothing has ever actually Uh been good 
It's uh-huh. our brain tricking mm-hmm. us. And when people say, like, it'll get better or, whatever, better or, you know, this won't be forever, those things simply don't land. <laughs> right? That is... Yeah. Or when people say, you're not a terrible person mm-hmm. and I do like you. Yeah. You're like, no, no, mm-hmm. no, I'm sorry. That's That literally can't be true. Yeah. You, your perspective is entirely compromised. And so when people try to introduce CBT to people in that state of mind, for some the compromising of their perspective and and ability to understand but this is actually because our sense of time is inhibited by depression so we we lose a sense of there being a past and a future and it becomes all about like this present feeling of i feel terrible and um it's a full like shutdown of the temporal processes that help us understand that when we're going through something hard it's not forever and when we're feeling bad about ourselves, it's not permanent. That's how that works. Yeah. And so when you introduce something like, oh, try altering your behaviors, it can, like for someone who is actively experiencing that depressive symptom, the brain does not absorb those tools well and cannot apply them well. So... No, exactly, exactly. Instead, if we if we bring that baseline up with ketamine, you know, you take a dose within 24 hours, you're feeling really good. And then you get introduced to CBT mechanisms and methods. Yes. Then your brain can process them and integrate them into your daily life so that the next time things start to slide back downhill, you have a toolkit that your brain has fully integrated that you can start to rely on. And and that is one of the ways that um, ketamine and other types of medical or medication assisted therapy help by supplementing other forms of like behavioral therapy. Awesome. Yeah, because it's something that, like, the human experience and life in general is not it's not a flat line, mm-hmm. right? Um, some days you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to my best friend's wedding. It's going to be amazing. And other days, uh, someone that you know or love gets sick, mm-hmm. and that's terrible. And then, oh, God, I've got to go to work, and I've got this really stressful project on. And then, oh, I've delivered the project, and everybody said we did a great yep. job, right? Like, the whole gamut of emotions is up and down and round and round and all of the things. And I think that is normal and expected human experience. Yeah. But the my experience of depression has been exactly what you described about the complete loss of perspective and time. Mm-hmm. When you feel terrible, all you've ever felt your entire life is terrible because you are terrible mm-hmm. and and there's nothing before or after it's just that feeling yes. and so trying to catch yourself before you're in the depths of that and go this isn't what my brain is telling me is not the truth my brain is not mm-hmm. on my side today so i need to be around people or do things mm-hmm. that are the difficulty is as you've said right is when you're in that pit you you can't learn a new a new trick or a new behavior or anything it's like trying to learn when you're fatigued mm-hmm. Like, I remember so many times as a teenager being sat at school, just like, I'm so tired. (laughs) The teacher is talking and I am not listening. Right? Or if you run a marathon and you then have to try and do some hard brain things. Like, I don't think so. I'm too hungry tired. Um, So I I think taking away that symptom, right? Whatever the mechanism (laughs) may be, right? Taking away that symptom and then giving the person, giving their brain a chance or giving the person a chance to look honestly at their brain and go sometimes you're not on my side pal mm-hmm. your thoughts are not necessarily objective truths and being able to identify that yes. is is huge it is man i wish i'd had some ketamine it sounds it sounds like a nice step 
It is, it can, I mean... It sounds like a useful tool in the toolbox for certain It is a useful tool people. in the toolbox for certain people. Yes, you're exactly right. And, um, you know, this is why also it's not recommended if you're supporting someone who is in a depressive state to do, to try and say things like, Oh, it's going to be okay. Just look up, just feel happy. Just do right. Because for a person who isn't in that depressive state, that might actually help because you can be reminded that there are positive things and that things do get better and all these things. But for someone who is in that depressive state that completely denies the validity of what they are experiencing, which is the opposite of that. Right. And so that's why we say, don't, don't say those things. Don't say, just choose happiness because. Yeah. Yeah. Just buck your ideas up. Like life's not so bad. And interestingly, when it comes to first line suicide prevention tactics, like if you are a person to whom someone else has disclosed that they are suicidal, that they have um, a plan that they intend to act on it. One of the best things you can do is remind them about things that are in the future because they are so deeply in the hole of not thinking about a future or imagining that there mm-hmm. is simply an end right now because this is the only thing there ever has been and ever will be. So it's already yep. the end has already come in that line of thinking. So if you can get them to think about does your dog need to be fed in the morning? That literally returns enough perspective sometimes in one single question to help a person decide, okay, I do have to feed my dog in the morning, so I won't I won't attempt suicide tonight because I will have to hold on at least until the morning to feed my dog, right? And if you yeah. if you can get a commitment of that one step, right? In the morning, does your dog need to eat? Who's going to do that if not you, right? Because Then you have returned at least a partial amount amount of future thinking. Of that and that's where that's yeah. where you start to tap in. Now you've got a foothold and you say, well, what about your best friend's wedding next week? What about, you know, and you start to return temporal perspective and it can be a life-changing intervention if that is where you're at. But it's not... It's not an effective intervention for people who are not suicidal, but experiencing depression. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. This is all very close to home, at yeah. least. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like we should have, we should have, like, put yeah, a we should have. I, Debbie you know what? I didn't think about, um, I didn't intend in the script, as you can see, did for us to kind of veer into <laughs> that. And so I apologize. How are you doing? Do we need to pause? Do you need to take a break? No, I'm okay. good. Uh, the third important outcome of ketamine research. Uh, is that ketamine therapy is effective and safe for people with bipolar disorder, people who are dependent on alcohol, and people taking and or dependent on benzodiazepines. Cool. So all the people who can't use SSRIs can have this. Um, Thumbs up. Yes, it's very good. So as a final note, ketamine is not considered safe for casual or at-home use, and it is not a first-line treatment. So it's not, Debbie, you're feeling a bit sad. Go get some ketamine (laughs) and tranquilize yourself at home. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So if you are interested in ketamine therapy, you can talk to your psychiatrist or doctor about it. Um, And just know this podcast episode barely scratches the surface of what ketamine therapy is and what the studies say about it. And moreover, your psychiatrist or other provider should consider your case individually. And there could be a thousand reasons why a provider does or does not recommend ketamine therapy for a patient. So I just Definitely. want to make sure that we're not, um, we're just, pre- I'm presenting this information because 
I think it's really fascinating and good to know about the research that's going on to support people. Um, there's also other psychedelics being studied besides ketamine for treatment of um, a variety of uh, psychiatric uh, disorders and illnesses, including yep. um, PTSD uh, to, to great effect. Yep. There have been a lot of great um, outcomes of psychedelic therapy, assisted therapy for um, combat veterans, for example, um, among many others with PTSD. Yes. What kind of drugs are we talking about when you say psychedelics? Remember, I'm not hip and cool and I don't know any of the drugs. Uh, great question. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, that is not one of the things that I, are you Googling it? What drugs are psychedelic? LSD, mm-hmm. psilocybin, mm, tryptamine. Give me the street names, kids. I'm not cool. <laughs> Peyote, PCP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Yes, all psychedelics. I didn't. I. I. Yum. I could have told you magic mushrooms were psychedelics. I didn't realize that was quite the the tenor of your question. Uh, psilocybin. At least I don't. I don't feel like. You know how uncool <laughs> I am. I think like, I think you're very cool. I think as someone who is so like plugged into like some alternative bits of culture, um, I'm just not cool. Like <laughs> I probably know the street names from drugs. When we did our resistance against drugs education, when I was like 14 or 15, like oh yeah, someone might say, "Do you want some of this?" and I'll be like, "Ah, oh, okay, cool." <laughs> but now I'm all that knowledge is 45 years out of date. Well, I never really had that knowledge. Any of it that I've managed to pick up has just been by accident. Because you're hip and cool, at least. Because you're hip and cool. I think I'm not very hip and cool um, in reality, but I appreciate that. <laughs> So it's it's so interesting to me, right, mm-hmm. that there seems to be scientific evidence mm-hmm. across a number of disorders. The one that we focused on today, obviously, is major depressive disorder and ketamine, where a drug mm-hmm. that, for cultural reasons, yes. not scientific reasons, governments, and it's not just your government, mine mm-hmm. is the same, have decided you human population minions should not take. Mm-hmm. You should not have access to this thing because it's bad. And as a result, the medical treatment of people with different medical needs is compromised, mm-hmm. right? Their, their medical care is, is messed up because of that. And it just seems wild to me how, like, oh, you have a headache? Sure, take take a painkiller, no yep. worries. You have depression? Ah, we're maybe going to be a little bit more careful about what we think you could have because we have decided that this product is dangerous. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if... if if a blood pressure medicine, right? If the government said, nope, you can't take it. That's an illegal drug. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And I think part of the, the fear, right, is that, I mean, PCP, for example, as another dissociative um, anesthetic drug, is has horrific side effects if taken in high doses or unsafe production, right, of PCP, that then... Any drug Any that's drug. cut with contaminants, oh, for sure. right? We saw it with with elixisulfanilamide, right? You contaminate a drug, b- bad, bad. Yes. Well, that's exactly the point, right? Is that like when yeah. taken, the point is that we're not taking it recreationally. We're not cutting it with, with 
unsafe compounds. We're not doing all these other things. We're studying the effect of a particular compound and how it treats a particular type of illness or disorder. And then we're introducing it as a therapy, not. And so I think the fear of right when we see like a word like, you know, Uh, like psychedelics or like um, dissociation, right? There's such a negative immediate response of like, oh, that's, that's what people do that leads to addiction. That's what people do that leads to overdose deaths. Um, That leads to, you know, all the things that we hear the slippery slope all the time of like, oh, good kids who drop out of school and become flunkies, become dropouts, become washed up, right? Um, End up in drug houses, end up, you know, living on the streets, all these things like that fear is so strong that with, but, but so many of the drugs that we do think are fine for developing into therapies and then giving to people would also be horrific on the streets. Like that's just, that's, that's part of how this all works. And, um, and I, and I think the, some of the side effects of, um, drug use mm-hmm. in an illegal setting, right? Overdoses mm-hmm. because we don't have safe therapeutic doses set out for people. Contaminants, needle sharing. Um, We're back to harm reduction, like, right? We could exactly. We could also be handling a really this. Great, yeah, there's a really great. There's more than one really great episode, Sawbones mm-hmm. episode, where they talk about like harm reduction and and what actually works. And like if you can uh, take the drug of your choice, mm-hmm. whatever it may be in a safe environment at a safe dose right with medical care around you and and you have a clean needle and such and such yes all of those things reduce harm and reduce societal harm as well because you're not and as we've inflicted i believe we covered in the narcan episode also increases the likelihood over time that someone might seek treatment if they desire it because they're exposed to positive interactions with public health nurses and treatments that are effective for them over time. And they have a chance to say like, okay, actually, you know, this might be the route I want to take because I've listened to you. I've read the pamphlets. Mm. I've seen the impact on my own life and I've decided I want to change it, but not everybody wants that. And the point of a harm reduction model is that you don't force that on people. You say, okay, it's your choice, right? You've made you've made this choice to do this thing with your body and your time, yeah. and we're going to offer you a safe way to do it so that you don't die. And if you want to change your behavior around it later, we can also support you in that, but that's your choice too. Yeah. Definitely. Anyway. I also think there's something about, like, we talked about, like, the perspective in depression, right? And I don't know, but potentially also in addiction, mm-hmm. right? The the perspective is is warped. So to have to have someone giving you that foothold, mm-hmm. right, of a different a different way of seeing it, maybe maybe would help. Yeah, and I think with ketamine therapy, like, ultimately we've seen that blowback, cultural blowback on the idea of ketamine because it has been villainized in a, in a variety of ways and sure. there, the the actions that people have done with ketamine should be condemned right sexual assault is never okay nope. period and using ketamine or other drugs to facilitate 
um, or make easier sexual assault is wrong and should be not it should, should not be, be no, 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 but we're not... You can absolutely condemn sexual assault and the use of any mm-hmm. any substance to facilitate that, right? But the number of people that um, would facilitate sexual assault with alcohol... Yeah. We don't ban alcohol. Nope. And, yeah, it ultimately kind of goes back to, like, how accepted um, and for what reason, right? Uh, there's... Yeah. But there's a lot to... I mean, there's a lot to put in that ravine of, like, how we villainize some drugs and why people use them. Um, And why we don't villainize others, like alcohol, for example, even though it's one of the most commonly used drugs, um, we don't think of it as a drug. We think of it as, oh, I'm drinking today, or I've had a drink. Yeah, 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 Um, absolutely. Yeah, so it's just, it's very, but but yeah, that villainization of the drug itself, rather than the use of the drug and the way that it is applied, um, is, has created situations where we have, we don't, we could, I think, at this point, have a very clear sense of ketamine as a treatment for therapy had we not had the setback in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Uh, uh, this war on drugs. I on also drugs. think, um, and we didn't talk about this at the time when we talked about the war on drugs, but it is worth highlighting, like, cause since we're in this cultural spot of how racialized mm. some of the drug policy is. Absolutely. In terms of who gets punished for what yeah. and which which drugs are, are, are most... Like, the fact that there's still people in prison for... Um, cannabis related crimes when yeah. like in your state and my town country it's not, it's not an issue anymore and the fact that the, the the vast majority of people punished under the war on drugs we did something similar to you right mm-hmm. on a smaller scale as with everything the uk does but we pretty much follow your lead um a number of people in prison and it's it's predominantly people of color yeah right it's not right. it's not your rich white banker doing cocaine at the weekends yeah that's that's very much the truth here of just you know who's who is what really was the point of the war on drugs again it was to incarcerate and criminalize specific people because we were losing yeah. other ways of doing it and so um you know everything is is always this cycle of reactive well how do we maintain the status quo right um <laughs> and the status quo <laughs> being racism and white supremacy in the united states means when Capitalism. we start yeah. yep when we start losing through the 60s and 70s legal pathways for discrimination through the introduction of the Civil Rights Act and things like this. Now we need to find another way to incarcerate more black and brown people. So the best way to do that apparently was to criminalize drugs, Um, but specifically enforce the criminalization of drugs that in their neighborhood. Yes. In their neighborhood. And the sorts of drugs that they would have access to. And and the sorts of behaviors that, like oh yeah, and there's also some bits of it that are like behavioral, right? Like oh you're you're a gang, you're hanging out, you're yeah. dealing. You're like I'm mm-hmm. just standing here, mm-hmm. and my friend is standing there. Yeah. What? Yep. And the more that we project those things, right? The idea of like oh you're a gang, you're standing there outside of a thing, like onto kids. Like the more you know, this is the constitutive nature of communication, which means like if I say like hey, you with the pink hair, and you look at me and you respond, right? You've accepted the identity I've projected onto you as, like, you with the pink hair and everything that that entails. There's, like, something to that. And so when we say, like, hey, you kids who are, you troublemakers, you troublemakers, you you gang members, like, on kids over and over, you're hailing them as, and and setting an expectation and an identity for them to step into when you do that. And then when they step into that identity, you're like, see, I told you they were gang members. When you 
label people as criminals. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Cool. Cool. Well, I, for one, hope long may research continue into stuff that works. Right? And sometimes the only way you know that stuff works is by doing research. And you know that it doesn't work over here and it does work over there. And you've got to, you've got to do the science. You've got to do the research to figure it out. And cultural stuff should not get in the way of working out what can save people's lives. And, like, I... I I mean, I feel, I feel, I feel feelings. Yes. Um, uh, depression is a spectre in my life and I cannot imagine being part of the 20% of people that gets no relief from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if this is something that could, for a percentage of that 20% of 12.5% of the American population, <laughs> there's a lot of, lot of like yeah, subcategories yeah, yeah. <laughs> down, right? Um, if it could make their lives better, why, why, why the heck not? Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. Well, that was that was a, a great a great trip to your Goblin Corner, Elise. Good Thank job. you. Welcome um, again to the Goblin Corner. It's very nice. It's very nice. <laughs> okay. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions, definitely if you have any questions, we're planning to do a Q&A episode, so email those in or send them in to Elise and I if you know us uh, personally. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Um, please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically, and of course, please rate and review. Um, you can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page, at clinical.research.intro on Instagram. Uh, finally, a big thank you from both of us to our incredible, excellent uh, friend, Sam Winnie, for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro. Um, thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise.